Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Shop Talk. Part one of this conversation was released on Sunday, January 15th. And we would very strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that conversation before diving into the second half. Thanks, and we're glad that you're here. How does it work where this year, just going through, we had Yovalde, the biggest school massive shooting. We had Buffalo, New York grocery store. We had Pittsburgh. We had a subway in New York City. We had the Bethel Synagogue. We had another gay, predominantly gay nightclub shooting. And why why do people need weapons of war? Do we understand even what the Second Amendment is and when it was written and what the context was? And right. why does somebody need an AR-15, right? Or any anything like that, but beginning to understand that. Rachel, talk a little bit, because I know the school shootings are a thing and the fear of all of it. But as a mom, right, we we have this world where we've had the largest number of mass shootings in the history of this country happened this in 2020. Two, looking forward to 2023, what are some of the things that you hope can impact um, those mass shootings that happen? Because what you hear from the right is, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. True, true, true. And then you hear from the left, we got to ban every gun in the world. How... What are your feelings and thoughts in 2023 um, and that that real fear of not only your children, but you going to the grocery store, getting on the subway, going to the gas station, and just the realities of how that hate has manifested itself in our country? It's really difficult for me to kind of split those things out, right? Like, how do you feel about this as a mom? Or how do you feel about this as like, an elected official or as an employee, right? Like, like those are all things that are sitting in my body, like coexisting together, right? Like I can't pull them apart, but I definitely sit somewhere in the middle, right? Like I think that there should be some sort of a weapons ban, right? There's not any reason to my mind for a regular citizen to have access to a you know, any kind of a weapon that has a high capacity magazine, right? There's no reason for that. Uh, however, I don't think that an all-out ban on all weapons is appropriate, right? And this is this is me because what we hear from the right all the time is something that I sit with myself, right? Guns don't kill people; people kill people. And then where I get real angry is that okay this is the right wing talking point and i could like if that was it right like if that was the talking point i could get behind that if the right wing also said okay we clearly 
have broken people in this country. What are we going to do to get them the help that they need? So this to me is like a mental health piece and not that I think that not mentally ill, though, in the way that we really talk about it, right? Like we talked at the beginning about like record numbers of depression and people struggling with anxiety, right? Like, I don't think that because you have depression that you're going to shoot up a place, right? Like the facts tell us that that is not true, right? But we have people who need access to mental health services because they've lived in a society and this also these people also reflect our elected bodies, right? We live in a society where young white men who are the most likely to go on some kind of a shooting rampage are living in a society where they have an incredible sense of entitlement, right? A social, cultural uh, sense of entitlement that has been bestowed upon them. So if we want to talk about helping people to not respond to rejection by killing a ton of people, then like you need to get some help with that. Mm. And I think where I come in as a, I guess I am splitting it out a little bit, but right. If I'm coming in it as a parent, like you then also need to be parenting your children differently. I see this story all the time and I have been, on the receiving end of this story as a much younger person, right? Like if a young man asks a young woman out on a date and she says no, well, everybody that that guy knows is going to tell him, oh, you got to keep trying until she says yes. No, you don't have to keep trying until she says yes, right? Like you take the no and then you work on yourself. You don't take the no and then go shoot up your church because that's where the girl goes that you asked out or whatever, right? So as parents, we have to parent differently, right? Like accepting rejection. Well, in that, like you said, it grounds in this place of entitlement and privilege. You know, when I moved from Minnesota and started living in states that fought for the, the the Confederacy rebels, I thought, I realized that a pickup truck with, not only do you have to drive a pickup truck, you got to put these big tires on it. You're driving in the city. What do you, what are you doing? And then Wait. you have to, you have to outfit it. You take the catalytic converter off of it mm-hmm. where, you know, mm-hmm. where, where I grew up, you had to have an e-check every year. No, you take the catalytic converter off and then you put a, tailpipe the size of a bowling ball on it so it can make the most this hyper masculinity oh, yeah. right yeah, um, yeah. i gotta drink ipas and have a beard and um just this over and then i drive you know the ar-15 and the boots and all of this stuff where it's all designed to protect kind of what you and i talked about earlier how you can process your feelings how can you right. deal with rejection? Anger is such an easy emotion. Oh, it's so simple. But these other emotions of fear and angst and um, loathing and depression and not feeling good about yourself and shame and all of these other emotions are hard and yes. angry is easy, right? And so that's what these movements and things do is they play into 
that entitlement and that inability that you haven't been taught by, you know, you know how much I love me some Sesame Workshop and how much <laughs> I love some some Fred Rogers who right. taught me as a latchkey kid that it was okay to get mad and it was okay yes. to have emotions and what real emotions were and are and how to process those. And so as parents and grandparents, those are the pieces that I think I try to do is I really try to focus on how you are feeling and it's okay. I have a grandson who's 10 going on 16. And every <laughs> time I see him, I hug him and kiss him and tell him I love him no matter what. And mm -hmm. okay, you're mad, but what what's really going on? Because mad is easy. Well, Papa, I'm, I'm scared. Okay. Yeah. Scared? Scared's okay. And Mad's okay too, but what what is really going on? I think one of the pieces mm -hmm. that um, I wanted to, because speaking of this anger and obviously living in Minnesota, we had two big things happen. We had Derek Chauvin sentenced to what twenty one years, right, for murdering George. We had yeah. the the three people who chased down Amir Lock or Ahmad Aubrey like a dog in Georgia and murdered him. We had them all sentenced. One of the pieces that this ties into, as you're talking about mental health and other things, is this idea of how public safety works. Right. And so I'd like you to, you know, we, we're going to do a whole episode on <laughs> how policing and public safety are not the same thing. Right. And you know, every other country in the world, the gun guy isn't walking around pulling people over when they're speeding or isn't showing up to people's house when they're an elderly woman like my mom and they press the fallen and I can't get up button right. and a guy with a gun shows up. Why is a gun person there? Right. right. Um, and how Minneapolis, more than anything, for people who don't know, at the time of George Floyd's murder, about 92% of all the police in Minneapolis didn't even live in the city. 92, 94, some number like that. Right. And it wasn't like they were living in St. Louis Park, just outside. Oh, no, they're living in Montemidae. They're living in Stillwater. They're living 30 miles outside of the city. And so you're taking the people's resources at a time. I think the city of Minneapolis's budget was 85% public safety. Yeah. So you're taking yeah. the money of the people, the limited resources of the people, and you're giving it to people who then go out and live 30, 40 miles away from the city. And we know how schools are funded, right, Rachel? Mm -hmm. So those people <laughs> then buy a nice school, a nice home in Stillwater, Minnesota, barely even in the state. And those schools flourish and prosper while the schools in the heart of downtown Minneapolis suffer. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know mm -hmm. if any of those things made anyone in the Twin Cities feel safe, especially when it's this occupying force that comes into your neighborhoods and polices you as if they are prison guards. So talk a little bit about public safety, how, you know, what are some of the things I like to call Minneapolis St. Paul the epicenter for change on mm -hmm. how we look at 
Because what you're talking about as it relates to school shootings and it relates to other things is all about resources. And to be honest, it's true public safety. If we invest in schools, we invest in jobs, we invest in drug treatment programs, we invest in healthcare and childcare for all and pre-K for all and these kind of things, right? Then crime goes down. That's just the reality. In neighborhood, the neighborhood I live in, we don't have a lot of crime. But because we invest in the right things, we don't need a bunch of police patrolling us because we have good schools and we have good health in those kind of things. So talk about that a little bit. The conversation about policing that's been happening right in the Twin Cities over the last few years has been, for me, a real education. Because I think that kind of where I'm sitting right now is that white people don't understand how policing is different in the cities that we live in compared to a city like Minneapolis, which is mostly people of color, right? Like we don't understand that those things are different. That's right. Because even today in the neighborhood that I live, the police are coaching the baseball teams and they're in the little league and they live in the neighborhood and their car is parked in front. Now, you know, make me a little nervous, but their car is parked (laughs) in front, right? Right. They're they're a part of the community. Very different from if you had police come to your community, like an invading force, like they're showing up to the prison, right? Right. You, not to protect and serve you, but to police you, right? I mean, that's a very different approach that I've had to educate friends about. I I told a friend, Rachel, we were talking about no-knock warrants. Well, Amir Locke, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I said, do you know what a no-knock warrant is? Well, no. That means they don't knock. Well, he shouldn't have gotten up with it. See, what you're trying to do is explain things that in your mind and in your world, you don't understand. And you're trying to make sense because the police are the good guys and they only bad guys go to jail and get shot. And and it just creates Uh this confusion in your mind. No. And I had to explain a no knock warrant is basically the police just show up and they don't knock and they don't announce themselves and they They just break down the door. Well, in this case, they don't break down the door. They come in, unlock, pick the lock, walk up the stairs. I said, I live in Kentucky. What do you think happens? Somebody starts creeping up 95% of the stairs in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. They're going to pull a gun too. Tell me a black person that if you said to them, police wouldn't drop on the ground immediately being afraid you're going to get murdered, right? But when you come in and you don't knock, so like you're saying, Getting white people and people of more privilege to understand that the justice system isn't what you think it is, and policing isn't what you think it is, and we are not living in two separate Americas. You're looking out the blinds, and half of them are shut, and people of color, the blinds are just all the way open. They see the You see the reality of what the world is. Mm-hmm. And I... Uh, so one thing that my city does that I love um, is folks from the city and folks from the school turn up for Night to Unite. So a Night to Unite, for anybody who doesn't know, is like a national movement to 
get folks to meet their neighbors. And I think that's kind of an undercurrent of what we've been talking about here too, is making connections with people, really, really connecting with folks. So when the, so where I live in Invergrove Heights, a school board member and at least a police officer and sometimes a city council member go together to community gatherings to be like, hey, you know, like, we're the police and this is the school district. Like, do you have any questions about what's going on in the city with the schools or the city council, blah, 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 whatever. Now, this last year, it was just me and one of our officers. Shout out to Officer Randall. He's wonderful. He and I were driving around the city, right, this past August. And I'm getting this serious education from one of the only Black officers that we have in the city. One of the things that I learned from him that honestly shocked me because of how weird I thought that it was is Officer Randall did his like initial like policing hours in Minneapolis. The difference between policing between Minneapolis and Invergrove Heights is that in Minneapolis, an arresting officer, they just arrest. They don't have anything else to do with the rest of the investigation. They have no connection to the case. They're just on to the next thing. Now, he hated that. So he came to Invergrove Heights where the arresting officer, if an arrest needs to happen, they're staying with the whole time, the whole case. They're making that connection. They're staying in the community. They're staying with the people. And I went, well, that that makes total sense to me. You don't just arrest somebody and then move on. Sure, if you're a prison guard. That 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 sounds yeah. like that's well and yes. when great points. I think what what people miss is when you hear things like defunding the police. People immediately <laughs> freak out. They can get rid of police. So then who am I gonna call? Well, first off, defunding police just means reducing the funding, reducing the percentage of funding you give to policing and investing in other things. So it's just a reallocation right. of resources, right? right? That policing right. is just one way to deal with public safety. There are a whole bunch of other ways. Like you're talking about one of the interesting things for 2023 is I saw a clip of uh, someone buying someone buying who is a, the first commissioner of cannabis for the city of New York, New York City in New York mm -hmm. State, just legalized effective today, right? Uh, cannabis use. And Ooh. it's interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> and obviously, Minnesota legalized some THC and didn't know, the Republicans didn't know that they were basically legalizing things and did it on accident, I guess. But one of the interesting things is how uh, at one point in Kentucky, I was sitting on a grand jury for a mm. month and we're getting all these different cases. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, you know, you got me, I'm a straight, you know, Minnesota progressive. So I, in Kentucky, and so first, and we get eight, nine, 10 cases a day and anything related to marijuana, I would say, can we set, can we set that out? I mean, I'll vote yeah. on fentanyl that, okay, I'll indict you on some fentanyl possession. Okay. Other things, let's have a conversation, but marijuana, no, 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 no. Right. right. And I had somebody say something about, well, it's illegal. We're in Kentucky, Adam. And I said, well, 
I understand, but the only reason it's illegal is because Richard Nixon wanted, knew he wouldn't get the black and at the time Chicano and hippie vote when he was running for president. So he wanted to criminalize those people. And the best way was to criminalize the thing that they were doing. And we were sitting there one day and, and one of the people said something about that, about it being illegal. And I said, says the people that live in the bourbon capital of the world. I mean, we're talking mm -hmm. about drugs, right? right. Um, and so right. it was really interesting to hear um, people's perception of marijuana. Now, even in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, there's an executive order for medical marijuana. So talk a little bit, Rachel, about, because I think these things intersect because we've criminalized certain people by mm -hmm. criminalizing their behaviors and their activities. People, the average Joe doesn't understand that there are people sitting in jail right now in every county, in every state that have been convicted of nothing. They're just there because they're poor or right. mentally ill or drug addicted. And hey, I couldn't get out. Or hey, I couldn't post bond. Or hey, because the officer added 10 different charges to what they were putting on me, I had to plea to something. And rather than, you know, I faced 10 years. So rather than taking the 10, I could plead lesser and I, you know, pled to yeah. five. And because you're poor and have to have a public defender. So thinking about how these systems are really designed, like you talked about earlier, understanding how the systems work, that's what people can do, mm -hmm. empowering yourself and speaking truth to power and living in that uncomfortable place of, oh my gosh, what I thought the system was is not what it is. Oh, it's different. Right. Um, like talk surprise. a little bit about um how the legalization supposedly in Minnesota has had an impact and what you think in 23 um these additional legalizations across the country are going to do. I'll be honest as far as like the impact that that accidental legalization has had in Minnesota that's not something I think I can speak to. Tell, tell, the people, tell the people about that <laughs> accidental legalization and how it happened, okay? Because yeah, I don't so, know if the average person knows how it happened. Yeah, so this is how I understand it, okay? The language in the legislation was um, to criminalize anything above whatever it is, five what i don't actually remember five, the, five is it, milligrams is five it milligrams? milligrams i was like yep. i could not remember the unit of measurement it was just yep. gone yep. um five. so yeah anything above five and so then by default anything five or below is now legal that's right so that's right. and and uh, synthetic so <laughs> right synthetic yeah. and so it was just based on the molecules too and mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. can sell you know x number of milligrams just as long as each serving, each, each gummy, each serving, each whatever has only five milligrams in it. Now you could have 50 of them, right? Uh -huh. But it's it's just five yeah. was the cap, right? Right. You're exactly right. Right. So, but in reading that legislation, right, like the the GOP controlled Senate is going, oh, well, yeah, okay, let's criminalize it, not thinking, okay, well, anything then below this is going to then be legal. Right. It was just weed is bad. Let's make it illegal. Now, I will say, you know, broadly, 
I'm honestly not sure what the impact has been. Um, I know that I personally am really enjoying those new seltzers that they're selling at my local dispensary. (laughs) (laughs) Those are great. Well, and I think one of the things has gotten better, right? When I have one of those before bed and I appreciate that. Um, Your, you know, anxiety, pain, (laughs) all of the things, but the, the bigger thing I think around this movement around legalization and yes, it's, it's all now, once again, white rich corporations have come in and profited while the black street dealer and the Latino street dealer and the person who had possession for years is now doing, you know, 30 years to life in prison because they've been criminalized for something. So um, those continue to be issues. But I think Mm -hmm. having people, I mean, I sat on that grand jury and I said that in that room. And then at the end of the day, we had to go sit in front of the judge every day. And so we sit in front of her. Judge was this amazing woman, amazing Jewish judge, just amazing. And she then she said, you know, I'm so happy because I can see you all aren't rubber stamping everything that the prosecutors and the police tell you. She said, I've been on this bench this long and this, we continue to be closer and closer. And so to have somebody like that say that people understand the system, yes. um, she brought up Nixon, right? She brought up mm-hmm. mental illness and drug addiction and that prison and jails are not for those people, right? And right. that we have no alternative systems. Um, she brought that up as somebody who had been on the bench, I think almost 20 years and how criminalization of marijuana was strictly designed not to criminalize the drug, but to criminalize the people, right? Right. Um, and um, it was really interesting for her to say that she had seen a market difference in in somewhere that is traditionally crazy conservative. I think the other piece of this that isn't it's not directly related to this conversation that we're having in this second, but is related to the conversation that we're having across multiple episodes of this show is that we also don't know how to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. When I'm coming at the conversation of um, like substance use, I'm also coming at it as a person who was born and raised in the Mormon church, right? Where like, alcohol no like not ever in any amount at all right like when I was a teenager people used to not believe me when I said that when you do communion you have water instead of wine but like they for real water instead of wine because also it's symbolic and it doesn't actually totally matter what you're drinking um (laughs) um and right like no coffee, no tea, no smoke in anything. And so when I'm coming at it with that perspective, right? Like I grew up in a world where um, like we didn't know how to, like I came coming into adulthood, I had no idea how to talk about uh, like substance use and what was problematic and what wasn't because all of it was. And so for me, right, I'm looking into this as a person who's now, right, 
in her mid thirties and I'm trying to figure out like, how do you have these conversations about, right? Like through alcohol use makes me feel uncomfortable or I see that, um, right? Like you're, you're feeling anxious. And so you're taking a gummy before you come to work so that you can go to work, but then you can't do your job, right? Like that, you know, these things are impacting your life or whatever, like, I grew up not knowing how to have this conversation and now I'm looking out into a world into a world of people who right like regardless of their religious affiliation also have absolutely no idea how to talk about something that makes them feel uncomfortable in a way that then comes to a productive resolution. Mm. Well, and talk Do about you know something. Mean? Oh, spot on. I mean, talk about something because where you started is with your own bias, privilege, level of comfort space. And th that's the scary part with people is acknowledging, hey, I'm coming to the party with some bull crap. So I'm going to yeah. have to unpack that first because that is why I'm uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable about weed. Or I'm not uncomfortable about gender, and I'm not comfortable about who people love, and I'm not uncomfortable about race. I'm uncomfortable with me having to reveal my soft underbelly, right? right? And that I may have had, or what I perceive the world to be, is different. One of the pieces, and it was, it was interesting last night, we were talking about this. I was watching this biotopic on Janet Jackson. Right. Yeah. And it's her whole mega life. Right. Yeah. And she's talking through the Super Bowl halftime show. And <laughs> I didn't even remember. I mean, I remember, but I remember being first off alarmed that Justin Timberlake didn't get any smoke for any of that. It was all heaped on the woman and the black <laughs> woman. I remember that in 2014. But the part that was interesting to me was last night. So it was eight years later, nine years, how our sensibilities are completely different. The same people that attacked Janet Jackson for whatever, a wardrobe malfunction in the Super Bowl and their mm -hmm. children and all of this stuff are the exact same people who vote for a pornographer, um, pay off a porn star for president. Mm -hmm. um, the exact same mm -hmm. people that voted for a guy who lied on his entire resume in New York before he got elected. I mean, lied and just justify it. So it's yeah. really interesting as you talk about Growing up Mormon, um, my background as a Lutheran theology student is how the church and the people in the church have always been those ones that are passing judgment, mm -hmm. but now more than ever have turned a blind eye to the sins and the debauchery and the vileness of people as long as they feel like they are going to get some ground, whether it be federal judges appointed or it be abortion, right, to be banned yeah. or to be schools stop telling kids they have to wear masks. This is a thing that I struggle with, right? Because we sometimes when people are talking about truth, right, which is like, like what we're trying to do they equate truth with uh, 
the organization that reflects their that represents their faith right so whether that is right you know like the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints or the roman catholic church or i don't know i feel like this is maybe a little bit more common within the different types of christianity that are out there than in other faiths but there's such a push right for my organization to be the absolute truth that then we're just going bananas at each other because your organization isn't the same as my organization when really the the faith to me right the faith that you hold is completely separate from the actual organization and so like I man, this was not on our talking points like at all, but here we're going anyway. I've been seeing a lot about this trend of millennials and Gen Z, right, continuing to just leave organized religion in floods. And the the organizations are going, what are we going to do without recognizing like, hey, no, what we are representing is not what is in line with what these people understand about their spiritual lives. Mm, mm. Well, and whether it be the Hillsong megachurch trend of hypocrisy and what, what I'll say when you were talking about the truth, it made me think, but he is the way and the truth and the light. He, he, right? right. Not an organization not even a word called Christianity or a holiday called Christmas, right? Right. That people just made up, right? <laughs> he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so it doesn't mean millennials and Gen Z are rejecting him. Right. Or right. God, Jehovah, Allah, Yahweh. But what they're rejecting are these idolater places that oftentimes are grounded in piety and judgment of others mm -hmm. and not in this opening of arms and saying, hey, let's go sit on a hill and find a little boy with a lunchbox and let's just get enough food for these 5,000 as well as the kids, as well as like 15,000 people up there that he fed from one lunchbox. He wasn't in the church either. Right, right. He was on the hill with the people. Right. And that's what the millennials are saying. No, that dude, he is the way and he is the only truth. And he is the only way that I'm going to have life, but through him, right? And let me go sit on the hill with him. And what's happening with millennials and Gen Z is no matter how much the rock music, no matter how many ripped up jeans and funky t-shirts that your so-called pastor can wear, they are seeing that the only way to eternity and to light is through him. And more and more today, people are recognizing that who he was is very different from the things that the places profess, right? I right. mean, completely night and day. Like mm -hmm. the carpenter from that, like that dude was going to be down with this? Like what you all are talking? No. Mm -mm. And, <laughs> right. and, I mean, I have plenty of young people with children really active in their churches growing up. 
and have now stopped. Like they'll they'll start going to a church and then be literally shoulders up on edge, freaked out for a, a guest speaker, a pastor, a church leader to say something that they know is veiled in racism, homophobia, xenophobia, Christian nationalism, white nationalism, all of that stuff. And so what people are saying is, no, I'll just reject that, but let me be drawn to the original source, to him. Those are hard conversations, especially for all of us who grew up in the church. We miss the place. We miss the people. We miss the process, right? I miss the liturgy, like straight up liturgy, miss it. But mm-hmm. I know I walk in there. I just can't commute, commune with those folks. I just can't. Right. Right. Because they wouldn't have been on the hill either. I'm going to tell a story. So uh, a few weeks ago, yeah, I don't know. You can say the end of October was a few weeks ago, right? Kids and I went to visit my parents because um, my husband needed a break from, sometimes you just need a break, you know? And I went, you know, we're going to, Um, so in the Mormon church, there's not a pastor members are assigned to speak. So they call it sacrament meeting, but right. Like your main preaching meeting, my parents were both speaking that Sunday. Uh, and so I said, well, I love my parents and I think they're wonderful people and I'd like to see them speak. So we're going to give it a try. going to see how it goes. We're a mixed family (laughs) and my, my six year old child, she's autistic. So she, in some ways she's very like textbook autistic she's super literal there's no right like expressions or like weird turns of phrase with her like she's very literal so we're sitting in in the front of the chapel just the very front pew right by um the sacrament table now and how i I have no idea how other churches do it but they have like little trays that they will hold either with bread or with like little cups of water that you can take. And they lay it all out before the service begins. So then you're ready to like say the blessing and pass it out or whatever. But there's like a white cloth that covers it kind of to symbolize we're partaking to uh, remember the atonement of Christ. Um, So my daughter, she's looking at the sacrament table and she goes, Hey, is, is somebody laying underneath there? And I said, well, no, but this is like, you know, symbolically, we're going to take these, uh, this bread and this water to remember the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Well, to her, there was no symbolism. There was just Jesus is laying (laughs) this cover. She lost it. We left before the service even began because she was not, she was not going to be in that room where Jesus was laying on that table. Well, and when you, when you start communion, you know, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you Uh for the forgiveness of all your sins. Right. Uh It, (laughs) as, as a hardcore Lutheran and Catholic, I mean, there are people that would get the, the communion wafer and wouldn't break it on, on the, roof of their mouth because they would feel like that was the body of Christ. Yeah. You know, I mean, and then once once that is is blessed in the, you know, the the wine or the water or whatever, and whatever becomes the body and blood, it is literal. That's why you keep it in the host up. You can't 
flush it down the toilet because it's now the body and blood. It was bread and wine, but now it has already been consecrated yeah. and it's yeah. it's got to be kept up in the host because it's, you know, it's Christ's body. So I think, I think, she, I think she was right. Right. But, uh, it wasn't, but Jesus wasn't laying under. Right. Right, right, right. <laughs> but like the atonement of Jesus Christ is something that I take very seriously, but that to me was hilarious. Right. <laughs> but if I had expressed that to anybody else, except for my parents who also thought it was funny in that chapel, they wouldn't have seen the humor. They wouldn't have seen right. Like our, our brains work differently and this is how it happened. And this is why the Hansons aren't coming to church. There would have been none of that humor. And to me, that's important. Right. Well, like, and, that, and that's so you can't can, commune with those people. Well, and can, <laughs> right? can you have true equity, inclusion and justice without it? Because right. Christ Jesus was a political martyr, a justice, equity, inclusion, the the greatest mm-hmm. in the history of the planet, right? That's that's what he was about. He made your daughter's brain the way it is. He made her autistic. And he would be busting a gut laughing. No, that ain't me under there. He'd be dying. <laughs> like, what? Probably you know, he was. You, you right? would think it was just completely sweet and funny and great. Especially right. because it's from a child, right? Who mm-hmm. he made perfect. Um, but those are the pieces that us as people, and I think right. that's what people are rejecting in yeah. the church right now. Especially the church tried really hard in the early and mid two thousands, um, and basically tapped out at the time of mask mandates and of um, supporting Roe v. Wade being overturned and all these things. Young people, especially young women, have said that is not the Jesus or the Christ that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that is rejecting or or indicting my gay friend or saying women can't stand up and preach or whatever. Um, and I think the challenge is is how churches can find spaces to not let the devil come in because he's just working. And that's what he does is have us Mm -hmm. think we're better than, right? Right, Um, right, right. Rachel, what do you think as we think about 2023, we, um, we started this partnership in 22, recording Get Uncomfortable, providing space and community for people to have uncomfortable or hear uncomfortable conversations and to get comfortable with them. What are you the most excited about related to the podcast for 2023? I am really, ultimately, I'm the most excited to be bringing more people into this community. Now, I know that we talked a little bit about it changing how we bring people onto the show and whatnot, but like really getting people into this conversation, whether that's through folks saying, hey, I have this thing that I'd really like to talk about. Can I come on the show and talk to you guys about it? Or getting emails like, hey, I really like that you've talked about, right? Like reparations or one thing that um, (laughs) Zach talked about this, I think in the very first episode that you did with him, uh, he talked about um, like the Jewish concept of a messianic age without the Messiah actually coming, right? Like, oh, like I want people reaching out and saying, hey, I really thought that that idea was cool. And I've been thinking about it for the last few weeks. 
So one thing is I was preparing to, I know that at the beginning we said this conversation is unscripted, but I still came in, right? Like having some preparation. Um, and I wanted, there's the verse in the Book of Mormon and I have my scriptures with me because that's who I am as a human that I wanted to pull out. And it's in Second Nephi. So, you know, if you are also have a Book of Mormon handy and you want to pull it out, like go for it. Um, so it's Second Nephi chapter 28. And it says, thus saith the Lord, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And part of why I'm not really trying to bring like religion into this, but this to me is a very faith, a faith-based endeavor. And part of the reason that I feel that this is blessed is because that's exactly what we're doing. Line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little, we're bringing people in. And that's just something that I get really excited about for the show. So Adam, how about you? <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> I I think you're spot on. I think first off, you don't know what to expect, right? When you start a podcast and you build a community and you just see if there's people out there that are listening and saying yes and amen to what we're talking about. So that to me, the purpose of all of this has been ministry right? Mm -hmm. That the there's enough evil voices and sinful voices in my head. I need as much in my ears and as much in my mouth as I can that are positive and hopefully God-filled. And if we can be used as a tool to do that, because I'm going to tell you what, Jesus made folks uncomfortable, okay? Mm -hmm. Peter made folks uncomfortable. Moses made folks uncomfortable. Elijah made folks uncomfortable. Muhammad made folks uncomfortable. Okay. This is all about that heart work of how we do our work internally to get through our feelings of, oh, I deserve to be comfortable all the time. We don't deserve anything. It's all grace. Right. And so when our response to grace should be to be willing to get uncomfortable. Because thanks to grace, we are promised comfort at one day in our lives. It just won't be here on earth. So that response that I have to make, that you have to make, is all to say, okay, because he was willing, they were willing, higher power was willing to be uncomfortable ultimately for me, I too am willing to get uncomfortable. That's what I'm excited about for 2023 is how we can continue to build that ministry, that community through fun, crazy, energetic, thought-provoking conversations. You're, you're spot on. Folks should, this is supposed to be interactive, whether you're just listening or not. So hit Rachel <laughs> up, hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, uh, email, anything in, in the notes for each episode and tell us, hey, I like that. Or, hey, you touched on this. Or, hey, I'd like to come on and talk about this subject. We're going to give you space. That's for sure. What we are is space makers, sometimes space takers, Rachel. We take some space, but we're going to make a little space, too, right. for everyone else. There's space else. for you. There's space for all of us. But That's those it. of you maybe who are used to having all the space, it might feel like you have less space. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> 
Rachel, happy new year. Thank you for coming from behind the scenes on our excellent production and all the work that comes together to share your experience, your expertise, and thanks for always being willing to take on the ministry of being uncomfortable. Well, I think that's what we're here to do. So Adam, thanks for having me both in front of the microphone and behind the microphone. I'm looking forward to this year. I think it's going to be great. Me too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. There are a variety of ways that you could support the show, including leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, sharing an episode with a friend, or just reaching out to Adam or myself to let us know what you thought of the show. Um, Our email addresses are in the show notes. So until next time, stay uncomfortable.